Hello and you are listening to Scar Joe A Go-Go, the podcast where I chronicle and dissect the films of Scarlett Johansson in chronological order. My name is Luke and this week I'm talking about Matchpoint. We're here to learn, not just to yarn, for our most loved celebrity. We'll watch the screen, what can we glean from her career trajectory? Cause she'd prefer if you'd refer to her as Miss Johansson. Don't be a jerk to Miss Johansson. Respect her work. She starts off really small and then she grows, she grows, she grows, she grows. Let's see how far she goes. Scar Joe go. Normally, at the front end of the podcast, I would hit you with some sort of thesis statement. However, why reinvent the wheel when Woody Allen has given us each a pair of roller skates? His film, Matchpoint, which I had never seen before until a couple of days ago, opens with an amazing thesis statement where tennis, the game of tennis, is used as a metaphor for life in which the journey of a ball can decide whether we win or lose the game. Will it go sailing over the net to victory or will it hit a cruel, unfeeling net and change the course of our lives? What Woody Allen is talking about here in Matchpoint is the concept of luck. Han Solo had it, Falcor the Luck Dragon from NeverEnding Story, he had it. The Lucky Charms Leprechaun, he either has it or wants it. And what little Woody Allen is saying is that so much of our lives and our trajectories depend upon luck. And does this metaphor not function just as well when we carefully examine the career of a budding young movie star? Every time our very own Scarlett Johansson auditions for a role, Grease the Star in a movie, she does this in good faith. She doesn't know if the ball is going to go flying over that net or if it's going to hit the net and everything's going to come crashing down around her. Recently, I feel like that ball's been hitting the net a few too many times, but maybe this is is the different one. Maybe this is the change. Change is in the air. The ball is ready to sail over the net and springboard Scarlett Johansson to a glorious victory. As wise man Dirty Harry once said, do you feel lucky, punk? Huh? Do ya? Huh? Punk? I'm talking to you. Do you feel lucky? Are you after my lucky charms? No, you're after my lucky charms. Punk. Huh? Do ya? Because when we last left Scarlett Johansson, she was unfortunately playing a very two-dimensional character, a very dull broad character who was the love interest for Topher Grace. If you remember, he totally scar-sexed, bohansoned her in that film. And that film that I'm talking about was In Good Company, an ironic title considering who she shared the screen with. It left Scarlett in desperate need for some decent dialogue and, heaven forbid, a personality and a character to play. Because, as I said last week, actors like to act. They like to do stuff. So, if you're going to cast Scarlett Johansson, for God's sake, give her something to do. 
Enter a small, bespectacled man, writer and director Woody Allen. Now, I know there are a lot of things to say about Woody Allen, a lot of really uh, different opinions, a lot of controversy has followed him around. Um, I'm not interested in any of that. We don't talk about Scarlett's personal life on this podcast, and I don't see any reason for us to get into Woody Allen's personal life either. We only ever talk about the work, the film work that goes up on the screen for us to interpret, and in that sense, I think that this work shows him to be a bit of a genius. Playing my hand early, but uh, I think this is a really good film, and he's a very, very solid writer and director. It's a film that, if it is at all divisive, and I don't think it really is, but I do think it catches people off guard, and and I think that's because he very successfully manages to subvert expectations. But best of all, in terms of um, our purposes, I've often talked about, talked, I say talked, complained, bitched, whined, about the fact that a lot of directors seem to understand that Scarlett Johansson is appealing, but don't understand what makes her appealing, and do not give her a role which harnesses her appeal. Woody Allen, on the other hand, absolutely nails it by comparison. I think this is a role which really takes advantage of Scarlett and gives her a very interesting, multi-layered, multifaceted self-aware character to play that starts off as one thing but really goes on an interesting journey. And I think it's important that we sort of all understand that as we go into this, you know, in order to to pull it apart better. In fact, I convinced myself that Woody Allen had taken a shine to Scarlett Johansson, that he'd seen her in other things and had written this specifically for her, that he was incredibly keen to work with her. Now, turns out that she wasn't actually his first choice. He had cast Kate Winslet. And I think that's interesting because I think there are certain things as as we get later into this story that um, Kate Winslet would have done quite differently. Um, I think the fact that she was unable to do it, and I love Kate Winslet, don't get me wrong, I adore her, I love watching her in films, but I think what Scarlett does with this and the interpretation of the character that they've ended up with is just perfect, and it's hard to imagine anybody else doing it. This is one of the good ones. Please brace yourself, dear listener, for Match Point. Now, uh, she's cheated out of top billing due to the fact that it's all in alphabetical order, Um, Otherwise, I think she might be, like, up there to a degree. Um, Although Jonathan Rhys-Meyers, to be fair, is our protagonist. And uh, it all opens with scratchy, old-timey music, and we see the tennis ball flying over the net in slow motion. This is what I was talking about at the beginning. Uh, John Rhys-Meyers narrates, and we have a lot of narrators, don't we, in Scarlet movies, and again, we're denied her husky voice at this stage. It's a male narrator, it's... Reese Myers, and um, the direct quote here is, a lot of life is dependent on luck. And he goes on to say, moments in our life are out of our control. And this is the tennis analogy, and we see the ball hit the net. That is our thesis. That's everything you need to know about the themes of this film. Everything that's going to happen is going to be in relation to this. It also ties in tangentially to Jonathan Reese Meyer's character, who turns out to be a former tennis, a former, former tennis pro, moving to London to work as an instructor at a very fancy club full of fancy men. Uh, so he gets settled into his new place in London. He begins coaching tennis. He reads Dostoevsky. That's 
important. Uh, the themes of Dostoevsky are going to um, layer themselves neatly and politely on top of the themes of this film. Uh, he meets actor Matthew Good, who I'm sure has done a lot of really serious, interesting, dramatic things, but I only remember him as Ozymandias in Watchmen. And uh, Matthew Good is this guy of um, good with an E standing. He's got rich parents and he's going to be a, a new pupil. Uh, with this tennis coach, John Race Myers. And um, as always, I'll refer to everybody by their actor name rather than their character name to try and help you keep track of this if you haven't seen the film. I should say, if you haven't seen the film, it's a pretty big spoiler. Like, this film isn't exactly what you think this film is going into it. So if you haven't seen Matchpoint and you're at all curious about it, I really urge you to watch the film. And I think you'll enjoy this more. But look, be honest. Don't be a dick about it. If you're going to go like, yeah, I'll stop listening to this because I'm going to watch the film. And then you don't watch the film. And then days, weeks, months, years, seasons, turn, turn, pages, fly off the calendar, clock hands, spin around really fast, big white beard sprouts out of your chin. That's not an assumption. Even if you're a lady, that could happen. Your hormones get all crazy as you get older. And you still haven't watched Matchpoint, and therefore I've used that as an excuse to not finish listening to this podcast, which I worked reasonably hard on. Then we have a problem. So be honest with yourself. If you're going to watch Matchpoint in the next couple of days, stop listening now. Go and watch it. If you're not, saddle up. Let's spoil this thing. So Reese Myers and Matthew Good, who are both frightfully British and refined and civilised, have a drink and they bond about opera. They both have a love for opera and they make a mandate to attend the following evening. So um, he goes along, he meets the parents. Uh, Brian Cox plays Matthew Good's uh, father. Brian Cox, motherfuckers. The original Hannibal Lecter. Someone out there is like, you just got that wrong, Anthony Hopkins, that was Anthony Hopkins, Sir Anthony Hopkins, do you motherfucker? No, look it up. And um, it's here at the opera where Rice, Reese Rice Myers had a couple of pre-show wines tonight, which I don't normally do, had an unsuspected, unexpected guest here, we, you know, we had a couple of drinks um, and playing catch up. I still think I've got this though, I think I'm going to nail it. So hang in there. Reese Myers meets Matthew Good's sister, played by Emily Mortimer, um, who seems to take a shine to Reese Myers pretty instantly. And then she ends up playing tennis with Reese Myers too. And they make additional dates to continue to see each other. Do try to keep track of this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep reminding you of the relationships. It's very important we get this foundation in, in order to understand what happens later on. You know what? I went into this film thinking this was a film about tennis, that it was going to be Scarlet in a little tennis outfit. I thought it would be very Woody Allen, a lot of characters talking about their feelings and neuroses and blah, 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 and tennis, pong, 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 pong. This is not what this, this film is about. This is about all the tennis you're going to see. So, John Reese Myers is teaching Emily Mortimer tennis. He's got to go because she's going to have a garden party. He goes and gets himself changed. He comes downstairs. He's about to leave the house. The party's commenced, meanwhile. And he hears a furious bout of ping pong coming from one of the rooms. Now, this is 12 minutes into the film. And he enters to find Scarlett Johansson. Now, we don't see her straight away. And I feel like this is one of her most stunning reveals that we've ever seen in a film. At least so far. Having just bested Mark Gattis, a silent Mark Gattis. He doesn't have any dialogue here. Mark Gattis, who writes Sherlock. He writes episodes of Doctor Who. 
Um, he's a fantastic Shakespearean actor. I've seen him in some stuff. Um, he takes leave without a word. So we see him at the end of the ping pong table. He's just been defeated. The ball hit the net, just as described in the beginning of the film. So he leaves and we hear Scarlett's very distinct voice before we actually see her. Now she's definitely, everyone else is British. She's still playing um, an American here, but at least this first line is somewhat more controlled and refined and clipped for her. The camera is on Reese Myers. We're only seeing his reaction. We're not seeing her yet. But her line is, and we always talk about the first line, and for the first time in a long time, this is a memorable first line. She says, so, who's my next victim? What does she say, are you my next victim? I wrote down, who's my next victim? But now, you know, having doubts. So then we cut to her, and, and seriously, she is absolutely stunning here. And this is from somebody who has not dwelt on her appearance very much in the 19 episodes of the podcast so far. But um, this is about a character falling in love slash lust with her instantly. And I think Woody Allen, through his direction, Scarlett Johansson, through her performance, is able to sell this idea instantly. Um, of course, she's blonde, she's got her hair tied back very loosely, she's wearing a white shirt, there are white curtains behind her, bright sunlight is pouring through the windows, she's incredibly radiant, uh, she's got a very confident, seductive look on her face. I feel like this is a perfect shot, like a perfect, memorable, iconic shot, just like her first appearance in Lost in Translation. And, and I feel it leaves both the character and the perfect viewer just a little bit breathless, which I think, again, is very necessary if we are to believe, um, just like in Lost in Translation in the elevator scene, that there is an instant attraction, that she is someone that's going to take your breath away straight away. It's not an outlandish shot. It, it's, it's not overdone. You know, there's some control to it. There's some subtlety to it, but it's, it's just perfect in my mind. And this whole analogy of the game as well, she's just gotten the better of one man who was left defeated. She needs a, a tougher man. She's ready for another. She needs somebody that is going to pose a challenge. And John Reese Myers is certainly uh, that man. Uh, she's totally cocky in this scene. The husky voice creeps back in as she asks him if he'd like to play for a thousand pounds a game. She's very confident she's going to win this. Um, I really feel Woody Allen gets it. He understands her appeal. I mean, she's killer here. And they begin to play him because he's an ex-tennis pro. He just aces her immediately. And she begins to realize that perhaps um, she's gotten into something uh, that she can't compete with rather than the other way around. And this scene is so aggressive. And I love that. And I think we're going to see this as a theme as the film continues. I mean, it's a two-hour film, but Woody Allen really wastes no time. Like, everything gets down to business. It's so streamlined, and it moves from one thing to another. There's nothing unnecessary. Like, I really feel he's managed to trim all the fat here. Like, Reese Myers pretty much puts his arm around her straight away and begins to coach her on how she can improve her ping pong. Um, and he's demonstrating her technique. But she never loses eye contact with him. It's all about him and her. Um, and she lights up a cigarette while they're in this position, which is another Scarlet trope. I, I think I speculated a few episodes ago, you know, ever since she sort of came of age here, that she's smoking in almost every movie. I think I did Google that, and uh, there are pictures of her behind scenes and out on the street smoking. So it's, it's definitely something that was kind of linked to her, at least at this time. 
Um, and then the scene, even the direction becomes aggressive. Like it goes into a very tight close up of her face close to his. You know, this was all wide shot. This was all polite social function. And now suddenly it's so close, so intimate. She's all eyes. Um, and she tells him that he plays a very aggressive game. Total double meaning, of course. Um, and he just comes right out. Like, this guy's got game. He tells us she has very sensual lips. Um, there's just instant tension between them. And, and you honestly feel that these are two people that would fuck right there if Matthew Good doesn't suddenly interrupt them and start to kiss her, revealing that they are, in fact, a couple. Matthew Good and Scarlett are together. And um, she sort of warns uh, Reese Myers that she'll be ready for him next time. And um, then she leaves these two guys sort of dumbfounded. And we watch her back. And he sort of lets the camera just linger here as she sort of sashays all the way out of the room in her white dress. I just think it's a wonderful introductory scene. Um, she's a, a sexually aggressive, confident, femme fatale, seductress. It's brilliant. But... It's even more brilliant because in lesser hands, I think that is all the character would be. Um, you know, it would be this femme fatale who was there to cause problems. Obviously, there's going to be some sort of rift form between these two guys. If we've ever seen a movie before, we know that already. We know she's going to be the catalyst for some sort of problem. But the character becomes more than that. And I really respect that. And we're going to find that out very soon. Um, and, you know, the conversation between Race Myers and Good reveals that she's a struggling actress. She's come over from America and that his rich parents certainly don't approve of her and um, her direction or lack thereof. So later on, and this jumps forward in time constantly, Race Myers is back dating the far more sedate and respectable, some would say boring, Emily Mortimer. If you remember, that's uh, Matthew Good's sister. And they're walking around London and, um, you know, being polite and civilised and not threatening to fuck, on a, fuck each other on a ping pong table. Uh, and then they finally kiss at a movie and he does take her home and he sexes her on his sex couch. And uh, Brian Cox, the father of um, Emily Mortimer and Matthew Good, uh, totally approves of this matchup. Um, not the, I'm not talking about the couch matchup. I'm not sure he knows about that. But he approves of the fact that Myers, this young ex-tennis pro who um, looks to be of good standing, is dating his daughter. Um, whereas in this very same scene, um, Mortimer's mother describes Scarlett as being moody, spoiled and temperamental. Sort of sowing seeds of how difficult this character can be. Characters one-on-one -on -one when you're writing it. One-on-one? One-on-one. One-on-one. Definitely one-on-one. I'm talking to you one-on-one -on -one, though recording this for you and you alone. But yes, one of the first things you learn about writing characters, it's not just what the characters say, it's what other characters say about your character that makes us understand your character. I said character so many times there that it became completely meaningless. And um, Emily uses uh, the mother's interest in Myers and the interest in what Myers' future will be um, to organize with her dad to help set him up a job offer in the business world. So he's going to go out of this tennis world and into the legitimate business world, a place where um, he's going to have much more longevity, obviously, and a place where he can climb. So as they discuss this at the pub, Matthew Good turns up with, you guessed it, Scarlett Johansson, the star of this podcast. She's still smoking uh, both 
literally and figuratively. She's wearing a black dress. She's got her hair down. She's talking about all the different cars she wants. She's just something really kind of decadent and I want to say evil. It's probably more wicked about her. And look, this is a total contrast to Mortimer, who's sitting diagonally across her from her in the restaurant when they begin her, their double date. And I mean, I, I think design-wise, you know, Scarlet's the seductive blonde in black, and Emily is the goofy, down-to-earth brunette in white. And meanwhile, Reese Myers, he's wearing black, aligning him to Scarlet, and Matthew Good's wearing white, aligning him to his sister Emily. So these two sort of darker, more decadent characters who aren't in a relationship are kind of flirting over the table where the, these two more sort of bland, open, unsuspecting characters, you know, they're pretty oblivious to what's going on here. And, and it's clear that Reese Myers cannot take his eyes off Scarlett Johansson. And, and we go back to these aggressive, nicely framed close-ups as she smokes and flirts with him and looks at him and I think though I mean it's not oversold it's a very measured controlled performance and I always feel we see that with a director that knows what they're doing and knows just where to pitch her performance knows how it works um you know and knows what her strengths are and the looks that she shoots across the table at him I mean they're just fantastic and it's not just, I'm not talking like just sex. It's not just sexy stuff. It's, I, I think she sells genuine interest very well. It's, it's far, has far more depth to it than a, just a like, I want to fuck you look. It's a, you intrigue me. I want to know more about you look. And I, I think that's sexier in a lot of ways. So we flash forward again. Uh, Reese Myers starts work in this office in the city. He's now a suit and tie man, a businessman. Um, he's back to dating Emily and talking about opera and the tragedy of life, something that I think will be important later. But we know he's still thinking of Scarlett and he's really trying to find opportunities to be around her and to wrangle social situations where, you know, his girlfriend's brother, Matthew Good, will be there and have Scarlett in tow. And um, as it so often happens, uh, Myers runs into Scarlet on the street after exiting a Ralph Lauren. Lauren? Lauren? Lauren. Sounds a bit fancier. And um, this is great because remember the last time we saw her, she was in the black dress. She was being, you know, very exotic and uh, being a seductress. This is actually the disarmed Scarlet that we're seeing. This is the real character. This is the struggling actress. Like, she's wearing her jeans, um, she's, it's all downplayed, and she's actually going to an audition and feeling incredibly nervous about it. He walks there with her to give her support, and she's far more real and flustered here. Like, that femme fatale thing has been dropped. And I love it when a writer understands that. Like, the fact that she's a femme fatale doesn't mean she's not a femme fatale anymore. Of course she is. But when you're a femme fatale, you're not a femme fatale all the time. You're not a femme fatale when you're doing your day job. You're not a femme fatale when you're buying your groceries or doing your laundry or whatever. He understands that this is a different side to her because her character has a different purpose at this point. I mean, that should be basic stuff. Like, that should be in every movie. But it, it just really isn't. And I appreciate the attention to detail here and the depth that she does have. And um, he agrees to go along for moral support. And uh, he ends up waiting outside and we sort of watch him instead. Like the camera stays on him as he kind of impatiently waits outside. And we don't actually um, see the audition. 
Uh, and he's very much in his own world here, and it's underscored by the opera again, which um, increasingly begins to accompany his thoughts. I loved the restraint here in terms of the direction, and I think that Woody Allen has been very controlled and restrained in what he does in Match Point. And that's a welcome surprise to me because when I think of Woody Allen's work, I think of it as being incredibly indulgent and verbose, uh, usually having a character that is a proxy for him. And, um, you know, he's an auteur. It's just like Tarantino. That something about an auteur allows you to be very indulgent. You know, I thought like, fuck, if I was doing this thing, I would want to show Scarlett at the audition. Like, I want to see why she fails these auditions. I want to see her go from this confident actress to sort of crumbling in that situation. I'm thinking, like, what a great acting moment. I want to see this. But Woody Allen, unlike me, understands that it's not important to this story. It would be giving us information that we already know. Like, we already know that about her character. There's no reason to double up on it. And by focusing instead on the brooding John Rhys Myers and that sort of, with this opera underneath, is actually far more important to the story and is setting up the tone of what is to come. Um, so instead, you know, we see her come out of the audition and rejoin him you know it's from his perspective and um you know she's totally frustrated and defeated like she blew it so that cockiness and kind of playfulness is all gone here you know she's got completely different priorities so the two of them go for a drink and um this leads to one of my favorite scenes because um you know she's sitting there opposite him she's smoking and this is the real conversation. This is the truth. This is Scarlet with her guard down. And this performance that she gives, it will both of them give. And I should say that. I love Jonathan Rhys Myers in this film, and I'm amazed he's not in more films because I think he's great. But, you know, she's found the truth that Bill Murray whispered in her ear. I mentioned self-awareness before, and she talks about her sister, who she says is beautiful but lost, and she's someone who went to college but got into drugs, etc. And it's not played with any sentimentality at all. Like, she's just talking about it in a, in a kind of weary way, in a very honest way. And Maya's response, he's obviously got one thing on his mind, says, I'm sure she's not as beautiful as you are. And Scarlett replies very dismissively, and I'm incredibly self-aware, what I am is sexy. And she sort of goes on to explain that whereas her sister is truly beautiful, she understands the difference. I guess, you know, like she understands that one of those things is a real ingrained, irremovable trait, and I guess the other thing is kind of smoke and mirrors. And you know, like we're 30 minutes into this thing, and I love the character progression and depth already. And, you know, and she gets more loose and, and sort of tipsy. Uh, but, you know, it's a subtle tipsy. She's not overdoing it. And I love how she went in the course of this film and just in the first 30 minutes from being this amazing femme fatale, just oozing sex. And now we're already seeing this real honest awareness of herself, um, aware of the persona that she puts on, aware of the effect that she has on men, um, you know, very aware of this real person who exists underneath the shell. The dialogue's great, the direction is great, her performance is great. It all comes together so beautifully. Uh, she talks about meeting good, she talks about a previous marriage. 
And it makes me realize, like, I think this podcast, this process of studying an actor, studying all their roles in order is proving that your opinion of an actor is really only, like, we're only ever seeing part of the elephant because not many people have seen all of an actor's films. So if you had only seen Scarlett's worst films, yeah, you would come out of it and go, and you would be saying to people, like, you were an absolute expert, oh, I don't think she's a very good actress, she's not great or whatever. But by the same token, you could have seen all her amazing films and come out going, I think she's absolutely fantastic, I think she's great. And I think that really is what colours our opinions of actors. It's really based on our own narrow experience. I don't know how it could be based on anything else. But I I think what I'm saying is, and I might have alluded to this before, that I think anybody who gets to this sort of upper echelon where they're starring in those films that are mainstream enough to appear in a mainstream cinema, you know, they can act. They, They don't get that far. You think of all the competition, they don't get that far without being able to act. But films rely on a lot more than just an actor. There are so many other people that are putting their own piece of it in and there's the overall vision of the script and the direction and the producers and all the commercial concerns and everything that you know it's not always going to work but I think it's rarely the actor's fault I I think it's what the people around um, choose to do with them and that's the gamble that's the luck that's the the ball sailing over the net Um, this character is also incredibly insightful like she's very aware of Um, Emily Mortimer and the way that Reese Myers is being groomed by her rich parents. Um, So she's a smart character too, which I love. Um, You don't often see that in the femme fatale character. And I really think making her an intelligent character is very much the key to understanding how to get Scarlet to work in your film. I think intelligence is one of those things that's ingrained as well. You can see intelligence in people's eyes. I do think she has a depth there, and I think you have to play with it. And look, she's getting quite slurry now, and basically sums up that everything is going great for Reese Myers now. Think of the tennis game metaphor at the moment. He's about to win. Unless, as she says, he blows it. And he wonders, well, how could I do that? And she says, and again, matter-of-factly, by making a pass at me. And I love the dialogue here. I, I quoted it wrote it down because um, I wanted to share this. I think Woody Allen is crafting a brilliant scene here. He says, what makes you think that's going to happen? And she says, and I think this is pretty meta because I, I feel like this is how a lot of people think about Scarlett Johansson. She says, men always seem to wonder. They think I'd be something very special. And he says, and are you? And there's this great pause And then she says quite playfully, but it's only a tinge of a half smile. She says, no one's ever asked for their money back. So Woody Allen nails it. Like he understands her appeal. He sees the truth and he puts it on screen. And because he sees the truth and she relates to that truth, she is giving us the truth in her performance. Like I really am surprised that this wasn't written for her. And I do wonder if any of it was tweaked once she was cast. And I think that thing about no one's ever asked for their money back is such a great punchline. I I almost hoped that this was going to cut straight away to them fucking. Um, But no, Uh, he questions instead where this confidence was. This confidence that she has now was when she needed it in the audition. And again, my God, this is a character then with different facets who presents differently in different situations. 
and a female character no less like who would have thought that was possible a lot of screenwriters should really pay attention to this because um that's how you do it but uh, no sex yet um more hanging out instead on double dates reese myers of course keeps watching scarlet throughout these dates even though he's there with mortimer um she feeds a horse like a seasoned horse whisperer when they're out in the country they all shoot guns in the country are these uh chekhov's guns that we're seeing might be spoilers there and then you know scarlet is even seen playing chess in the family house with matthew good chess started off as a femme fatale now she's playing chess which i love she's intelligent and good's fancy mother questions how long she's going to keep trying to be an actor seeing as how it's obviously not working out and i really like this because scarlet is obviously incredibly offended by what the mother's saying but she doesn't fight back here she just listens and it's so intent you know you can see the offense on her face and then she just gets up and leaves it's just great and a storm starts brewing outside. Um, Scarlet is walking outside alone in the rain. Again, it's not sentimental. We actually see it from Maya's point of view. He's inside and he looks out the window and you can see her walking off into the rain in the distance. And he like chases after her like a hound after a fox. So they meet up in the rain and seconds later, he's kissing her. Again, very aggressive. Uh, and she actually protests, which I like that because she was playing with him in the first scene. But um, she's smart enough to know that this is incredibly problematic, like what he's doing here, and that there's going to be some sort of fallout. But she's got him, he keeps kissing. Uh, she's actually far more nervous about it than I expected, but somehow cannot stop herself. They drop into the like field in the rain and they fuck. He's pulling off her, her clothes as we cut away she has a kind of classic move on her butt as well it's kind of a porn move like he doesn't just put his hand around to like clasp the cheeks he kind of like rubs his hand down the right down the center like he's about to stimulate something and then he kind of backs off like oh uh maybe i'm bringing too much of uh my home life into this pretend sex scene better dial it back so we cut from this sex in the rain to the opera where Myers, again, they're sitting up in the private box. He's looking very brooding and intense. Scarlet is back with Matthew Good, uh, who answers the phone at the opera like an A1 douche. I thought these people were classy and refined. Obviously not. And it turns out the call's actually for Scarlet. So um, it's a call about a callback. She takes it outside like a decent person would. I wouldn't expect anything less from her. Myers wants to know why she's been so cold to him. So he follows her out. And then while they're out there in private, he's like, you know, why are you sound so standoffish after we fucked? Like, what's happening? And she's like, you know, I'm not interested. Like, it was passion. Passion, things happen. Like, but it's over, dude. It's not going to work. Uh, and I like this. She has agency. And I also love that this is complicated. It's not, not black and white. It's a very difficult situation with a lot of conflicting emotions. And that's what life's like, right? Life is a difficult situation with conflicting emotions. We flash forward again. Reese Myers sees Good and Scarlet through a window at a gathering. They're in the corridor. Um, they've sort of found a quiet area of the house. And she is taking off her underwear and kissing him wildly before they realize that Reese Myers is kind of creepily watching them. And it's funny, Matthew Good just completely bounces out of it and stops what he's doing and starts talking to Reese Myers and having a bit of a joke. But Scarlet, it's so passive aggressive here, just ignores Reese Myers, even though they've got this secret sort of past now. And he's really focusing instead on Good, like continues to kiss him. It feels like she's kind of rubbing salt 
into the wound here and kind of um, antagonizing Reese Myers over, you know, something that he has no right to or claim to, you know, really alienates him as the intruder. So Reese Myers is completely dejected. So he does what any dejected man would do. He spite marries Emily Mortimer. Um, and they move into their new house. Like I said, this film just rockets along when it wants to, from plot point to plot point. Uh, she wants children, now they're getting settled in. Uh, but she's having difficulty, uh, conceiving them. So Reese Myers is dealing with all this. He's continuing to coach Matthew Good at tennis, and Matthew Good reveals that he has split up with Scarlett. So suddenly, oh shit, son. Reese Myers, you know, he's still with Mortimer, they're trying to have this kid, but of course he's still in lust with Scarlet, and begins to unsuccessfully try and track her down. Nobody knows where she is or what's happened. And it's actually like an hour and 11 minutes into this thing before Myers happens to see Scarlet uh, walking through the city and uh, begins to follow her, but he becomes cock-blocked by Emily Mortimer. Uh, he manages to sort of detach from her, he chases Scarlet again, and finds her looking at art in the art gallery. And there's this great wide shot here of her framed by this giant painting in the background. I really enjoyed this. And um, he approaches her, he tries to make nice, but she looks very unsure. Even though she's a free agent now, she's not really sure of his motivations or what's going to happen. And, and, you know, she has a right to question his motives, because there's something about Reese Myers here as this film continues, where he does seem a little creepy and desperate. And his wife, Emily Mortimer, interrupts them, um, catches up with Scarlett herself, but he does manage to get a quiet moment with her just before Scarlett goes, where he harasses her for a number. And she really kind of is reluctant to give it to him at first, but ends up like just saying the number and he memorizes the shit out of it. And we rocket forward again moments later, uh, Scarlett and Myers are totally getting it on in a flat. He tears off her shirt um, afterwards. She smokes in bed. She's very low-key, very deep voice, husky, Scarlett Johansson afterwards. And then, you know, like I said, it's complicated. She's still not sure about all this. You know, you don't know if she's convinced that this is a good idea. But he, on the other hand, is totally into it. Can't believe she's smoking in bed. It's like she cannot stop. Put some patches on her. And then, you know, after this liaison with Scarlett, Reese Myers goes back to being cold, detached, and disinterest disinterested with his wife. And then it's back to kissing Scarlett up the stairs to her apartment. And at this point, they're interrupted by an old landlordy uh, lady um, before going inside and getting back into it. Um, this old landlord lady will be important later. And uh, they're starting to get into some, you know, pretty kinky stuff here. Scarlet blindfolds him uh, with his tie, and it's her that takes his shirt off this time. Like, as she, uh, as a struggling actress, she doesn't want too many of her shirts ripped to pieces in a frenzy. Time rolls on. Scarlet uh, blows another audition. She's getting really pissed here. This is where she's starting to get more erratic and temperamental, which is what the mother promised earlier on and she's becoming incredibly frustrated that Reese Myers won't leave Mortimer and she's really starting to put him on the spot here which I really loved I mean it's all character stuff and you know she hasn't had a role like this for far too long and the vice is beginning to close around him this is becoming a real issue but Woody Allen still toys with us. I mean, then we've got this scene where he's got Scarlet on the bed. There's opera playing. She lies on her stomach with her shirt off and he oils up her naked back, kissing her from behind while it snows outside. Holy shit, what a scene is that? 
So she's enjoying it when they're together. Like they're beginning to really bond. They're having these beautiful moments, but this whole specter of the wife and the fact that he won't leave is really becoming a problem. So and she starts calling him at awkward times. She's becoming more demanding about seeing him. He's like having to try and make up these weird excuses to fob off his, fob off his family in order to go and see her. And why does she keep calling? Why is she constantly harassing him? Because she's pregnant. So they have their confrontational dramatic scene about it. He wants her to get an abortion. He's very cold about all of this. And she does not want to have a third abortion, it turns out. Um, So she completely holds her own. She's yelling at him. She's telling him that he needs to do the right thing. I think she's really awesome here. We talked about Kate Winslet before. I, I feel like Kate Winslet would possibly be more sort of teary and kind of shaky and kind of desperate in these scenes. I like that Scarlett has real strength, gets really pissed off with him, stands up to him, and he's basically, you need to do the right thing. And he does. He has done the wrong thing. He's in the wrong. This is not like, oh, you know, the this isn't fatal attraction where we go, we dismiss her as like this crazy that's trying to wreck everything. But, you know, she is in the right. And even like Emily Mortimer now, the wife is getting suspicious. She's saying to him, are you having an affair? Is it me? Like, what is going on? And he keeps denying everything. He's just got no empathy, no conscience about any of this. Though he does confide in a friend, a male friend, um, and explains this dilemma, this this whole love versus lust thing. And, and the, basically it comes down to the fact that he does not want to give up his high standing. You know, he doesn't want to go backwards. He's got this office job. He's got the money. Everything is tied to his wife. And even though he is in complete lust with Scarlett Johansson, he doesn't see how they would have a future. And and climbing ever forward is important to him. And again, what I like about this compared to some other Woody Allens that I've seen, this is your protagonist, Jonathan Rhys Myers. And I, apart from the fact that it's cleverly written and that there's intelligence here, I don't see Woody Allen the person in any of these characters. These are the characters that exist outside of Woody Allen. There's no proxy for Woody Allen. There's no little neurotic guy. This is very much a world of its own with characters that have lives of their own. So Myers tells an increasingly pissed off Scarlet that he's going on vacation with his wife for three weeks and he's going to let her know when she gets back. So Myers tells a pissed off Scarlet that he's going on a vacation with his wife for three weeks, but when they get back, he's going to tell her about the affair and he's going to break it off. And Scarlet's very jealous. She starts yelling at him in public. She doesn't want him to go. He, she, she wants him to just man up and do it now. Uh, the vice tightens further. He goes off on his break and she continues to call. Turns out he's lying. He hasn't gone anywhere. He's just stalling. And she ends up seeing him on the street and realizes that he hasn't gone on holiday at all. Um, And I love this bit. This is a great performance. She approaches him in public. She's screaming. She's crying. She's screaming liar in his face. Um, She's saying that she's going to tell Emily Mortimer if he's not. He's, He's like embarrassed. He's out in public. He has to bundle her into a taxi. This is a great character arc. When you think of how she started and where she is now and just how much emotion is pouring out of her, how much anger, jealousy, betrayal. It's fantastic. She continues to threaten to go to the wife, calls him on his bullshit, pushes him. You know, this is your last chance. Do the right thing. So this is where things start to take a turn. At night, he broods in bed while the opera soundtrack plays in his head. His oblivious wife sleeping next to him. The next day, he gets one of those Chekhov's hunting shotguns from the father's place and puts it in his tennis bag. The tennis metaphor, of course, continues. He is about to play 
a uh, very important game. He goes to Scarlet's flat. He sees her. The arguing and yelling continues. Later, though, he agrees to meet her to make plans after work. And, and she's very hopeful about this. She's beginning to feel maybe he's changed his tune. Maybe he's going to tell the wife. So he goes around after work. She doesn't answer the door. But it's the landlord lady, the old lady, that sees him and lets him in. And um, as she goes off to fuss around something, he takes the gun out of the tennis bag, therefore beginning this game, and he shoots and kills the old lady. I know, holy shit, right? This is why you had to watch the film first. If you haven't watched it yet, you're feeling pretty, like, sorry in your britches now, right? Um, but I like this again. I said that this wasn't an indulgent film and that it was very controlled. We only see him shoot through a doorway and we see his harried reaction at her death, but we don't see her get shot. That is off camera. An opera plays throughout this scene as the tension just builds. And he starts to rifle through the drawers, trying to make it look like a burglary. And he like sits there and he works himself up as the oblivious Scarlet on the other side of the city is making her way home. Uh, she's in a car as a passenger, viewing her surroundings as music plays, which is a classic Scarlet trope. How many movies have we seen where she's in the back of the car looking at the scene around her while music plays? And then she gets home, she exits the elevator, and we cut across to him, we don't see her, and he shoots her. Off camera again, we don't see her get hit. But, like, he fucking shoots Scarlett Johansson and then returns to meet his wife as though nothing happened. And that is the last we see of Scarlett Johansson in this movie. John Reese Myers murdered her. So, holy shit, right? Uh, this isn't the movie that we thought it was going to be. Uh, the police turn up. They think, obviously, that someone robbed and killed the old lady and that Scarlett returned at the wrong time. We talked about luck at the beginning of the show. Uh, they think this was bad luck, bad timing on her part. The families find out. They are all shocked. Mortimer shocked. Good shocked. Myers even has the audacity to act shocked. We also find out, happier news, Mortimer is finally pregnant. But a detective wants to speak to Myers. He calls up. He organizes this. And before Myers goes, he throws the stuff that he stole into the river. But he does not realize uh, that one of the rings that he throws does not go over the bridge railing into the water. Now, this is a railing that very suspiciously looks like a net, and we see the ring in slow motion hit the fence and bounce back onto the pavement, just like the tennis ball at the beginning. Woody Allen, you magnificent bastard. Will this be his undoing? Is this the bad luck? Is this the ball hitting the net, which makes Reese Myers lose the game? And you know what? In most movies, it would be. He goes to the police. He claims to have not seen Scarlet since that day at the art gallery, but the police have her diary that reveals the entire affair. So he confesses to the affair. He begs them, look, be discreet. Do not wreck my life. I, I you know, I might be unfaithful, but I'm not a murderer. Don't spoil my marriage. Um, one of the detectives thinks, look, it's just a drug-related thing. It was a junkie that did this. It wasn't Reese Myers. The other's not so, so sure, but he doesn't want to cause problems with the family. Not yet. You know I said that that was the last we saw of Scarlet? I lied to you. It's not exactly the last. That night, 
a restless Myers. He wanders the dark house, hearing strange noises, and he sees the ghost of Scarlett Johansson. She just appears. I'm not talking chain see-through. She doesn't look like Slimer, anything like that. It's just Scarlett. And she's very much looking like she did the very first time she met. And he, they have this conversation. It's this wonderful conversation. Um, it's not particularly long, but helps us understand his end game here. And he's prepared to learn to push the guilt under the rug and move on. And then the landlord lady, she turns up as well. And Reese Myers says very coldly, very psychopathically, the innocent are sometimes slain to make way for a greater scheme. You were collateral damage. To which the landlord lady says, so was your child. And Scarlet warns him that Reese Myers should be prepared to pay the price and believes that these are the actions of somebody that is begging to be found out. The ring, the net, let's see. But then, twist upon twist, this ghost vision is the dream of the detective that had the doubts. He wakes up and realizes Reese Myers did it. And he has successfully predicted all the details. Like he understands what must have happened, how it was a setup to make us think that it was a robbery that went wrong. But he begins to think, no, no, this was a plan to kill the girlfriend that he was having an affair with. And uh, he tells the other detective, he says, I think Myers did it, we need to get him in. And no, the detectives have found a junkie who killed someone else and had the missing ring in his pocket. So there's no case against Myers anymore. The junkie takes the fall. He has successfully gotten away with murder and the very final scene is back to the family as they celebrate his newborn son. And I think it's Brian Cox, the father, that says, I don't care if he's great, I just hope that he's lucky. And Reese Myers uh, looks out the window unaffected. So luck was definitely in his favor this time. Holy shit, that was match point. Such an interesting film that I think defies expectations. I think it certainly defies expectations of what you assume a Woody Allen film might be like. And I've heard people struggle with this idea of um, what happens, the fact that Scarlet's murdered and that this becomes a murder thing. And not only that, that justice isn't served, that this guy gets away with it, that he manages to continue to live his um, cushy rich life that you know this guy has his cake not just enough to have his cake he also eats his cake has another cake on the side and then probably sticks his finger in a pie but i think what's interesting is that us as an audience and woody allen as a writer and director are approaching this film from completely different sides woody allen the whole time has been making a little hitchcock-esque thriller where somebody gets away with murder but we didn't know that's what he was doing. We thought that this was a sort of romantic drama. And because the drama is so great, and because the performances are so great, and the script's so great, the characters are so great, we're so sucked into that, that we think it's a different genre, and we're not expecting the, the twist that Woody Allen, of course, planned all along. A more extreme example of that phenomenon would be Dust Till Dawn, where Tarantino goes, I'm writing a vampire movie. But that whole front end is so compelling and so sort of feels like a different genre. It's just sort of this, you know, really intriguing crime drama that by the time the um, vampires appear, you're 